temptation. Temptation. What, what do you feel when you hear that word? Temptation. Because I think as human beings, especially redeemed human beings, we probably feel two different ways about it, don't we? First we're like, oh, temptation. Then we're like, oh, temptation. Depends on what you're being tempted by, what your normal temptation is. Here's the problem. We like it. And we don't like it. That's why it's temptation, right? We're going to look today at what I really believe is just absolute positive, holy ground. Now, all the Bible is holy, and I'm not saying this is any more holy, but we're going to look today at the temptation of Jesus following His baptism. And we're looking at a direct confrontation between the Son of God and Satan. Now, we don't get a whole lot of glimpses into that direct interaction. <clears throat> we see it kind of bubbling under the surface a lot. But today, we see Jesus face to face with Satan. And we can learn a lot from what happens here today. Especially in dealing with temptation. So, we're going to read Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Uh, so if you would stand as we venture onto this holy ground, which is holy because it's the Word of God, and particularly mm, impressive because of the nature of what happens in this passage today. So as we partake of the very words of God, may His Spirit speak and teach us. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the historical account of this temptation, of this direct confrontation between Jesus and His enemy and our enemy. God, thank You for His overcoming. Thank You for His obedience. Thank You for His pattern 
that He has set for us in how to deal with temptation. God, thank You for the same Holy Spirit that empowered Him that now lives in us. And I pray that You would give us insight by the power of that Holy Spirit into how we should restructure our lives, restructure our minds in light of what we see today. We trust You to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Temptation. I want you to think about a recent a recent temptation that you incurred, that, that you observed, that you had. And I want you to think just for a minute as we begin, in light of what we just read, I want you to think about how you responded to it. Maybe you overcame it. Maybe you succumbed to it. But I want you to think about your initial gut reaction, your reflex when you're tempted. And I want us to redirect that. And maybe, maybe you don't have to redirect it. Maybe your reaction is biblical. Maybe it's not. So, let's start with verse 1. What do you say? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, as per usual, it's important to retrace our steps from previous weeks to help us set the stage for what we're looking at today. Now, we've said from the outset of our study in Matthew that Matthew's goal in writing this account of Jesus' life and ministry was to show his primarily Jewish audience that Jesus was the promised forever king of the Jews. That Jesus was the one who would fill David's throne. That David was promised way back when, when God said, somebody from your bloodline will sit on the throne of God's people forever. Matthew is telling his Jewish audience, Jesus is that king. So this theme of Jesus as the king dominates this gospel account. We saw Jesus' kingly ancestry, followed by his birth in chapter 1. Then we saw the visit of the kingmaker Magi and the flight to Egypt away from the wrath of Herod who was afraid someone would usurp his throne. King Jesus ended back up ended up in Nazareth as a fulfillment of prophecy when he came back from Egypt in chapter 2. Then in chapter 3 we saw the king's herald John the Baptist preparing the way before the king which led us to last week when we saw Jesus baptized and the Holy Spirit descending on Him in the form of a dove, with the Father proclaiming that Jesus was His beloved Son, with whom He was well pleased. So to this point, Jesus was preserved through a kingly line, fulfilled kingly prophecy, was proclaimed by His herald, and then pronounced to be God's very own Son. So it's quite an impressive journey already. And we haven't really gotten into His ministry yet. So now here... As his earthly ministry gets underway, with the heavenly word, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, still ringing in his human ears, the work of Jesus begins by a parade. No. A coronation service. No. A military campaign. That's what kings do, right? But Jesus begins his service. Jesus begins His campaign with none of those. Fresh off of His exhilarating baptism, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
Alrighty then. That just might be important, by the way. This king, this son of God, leaves the very public ministry of John the Baptist. Remember it said that all of Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding areas, everybody was coming out to John. So here comes Jesus very inconspicuously, gets baptized, has this exhilarating thing. And, and again, my mind goes to, wow, you've already got a crowd there, Jesus. You've got, you've got all of Jerusalem and Judea and all the surrounding areas coming out. You need to hang out there and start this thing off with a bang. But what happens? He is compelled, is what the word literally means. Compelled by the Holy Spirit into a wilderness temptation. Listen, God does not work like we work. God does different stuff. God does things a different way than we think He should do them. Anybody ever seen that in your life? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now go out into the wilderness and get ready because you're going to be tempted by the devil. Hmm. It's pretty interesting. Don't hang out with the crowds. Don't hang out where everybody is. Go where nobody is. And don't eat for 40 days. Hmm. Compelled by the Holy Spirit into a wilderness temptation. Every part of this is important. First, we already noted that it was after his baptism. He would have been tempted throughout his life prior till now, being fully human. But here, this is a particular time of temptation after that baptism. Mark adds in his gospel, after the baptism, immediately the Spirit compelled him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So this wasn't like Jesus hanging out and having uh, tea and biscuits with everybody. This is like Jesus comes out of the water, hears the heavenly proclamation, and immediately the Spirit of God says, Go. And He goes. So it was immediately. And then note the cause of why He was going. He was led up by the Spirit. That means it was the Holy Spirit of God who was leading, who was compelling Him here. God was leading God in this event. And God was leading God into the wilderness. That means it was a desolate and dangerous place. Again, desert, I mean, wilderness is desert. It's not trees and flora and fauna. It's sand and rocks and scorpions and snakes and spiders. And so God says to God, go out there by yourself. And here, surrounded by sand and snakes and scorpions and other problematic issues and animals, he found himself alone. Alone. Who likes to be alone? Every now and then. Forty days, forty nights. With the devil showing up at the end of that. Anybody up for that? He was led out by himself alone for what purpose? He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, purpose statement, to be tempted by the devil. That's why this was happening. God goes from pronouncing His pleasure in His Son at His baptism to thrusting Him out into the dangerous setting of the wilderness so that He could be tempted by the devil. You ever cried out and said, God, if you loved me, you wouldn't let me go through this temptation. 
God, if you loved me, if you were well pleased with me, you wouldn't let me be tempted. And what we see here is the Son of God is loved, Father is well pleased with them, and then the Spirit of God compels him to go out and be tempted by the devil. Now, does that trouble anybody besides me? Think about it. What an amazing turn of events. Love you, son. Now to the desert to be tempted by the devil. And that word tempted is loaded. The Greek word is pirazo. P-E-I-R-A-Z-O. It's got a pizza feel to it. Everything's got a pizza feel to it when you're hungry. Pirazzo. And it can mean to tempt and it can mean to test. Two different meanings there. Two completely different meanings. Major difference. Was God seeing if His Son would hold up under pressure? Was God trying to see if Jesus would choose evil over Him? A bigger question is, could Jesus have sinned if He so chose? Now there's a lot going on here. And again, the Word tells us more than we might initially think it does. Let's look at a couple passages of Scripture to set the tone for this Word. James 1, 2-4 Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, that word testing is pirazzo. The same word as tempted. So you know that testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now that sounds like a good thing, right? That testing is good. But now look at this, James 1, 12-15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now again, it's important to see, tempted is parazzo, testing is parazzo. Same word. Two different Views of it. In a good way, we are tested by God so that we might produce steadfastness. And we are to count it all joy when we're tested. But conversely, we're tempted, same word, can't say God's doing it. He, he does not tempt with evil and He doesn't tempt any... He is not tempted by evil and He does not tempt anyone with evil. But each person is tempted, Pirazzo, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So, when I ask you to think about a recent temptation, were you being tempted or were you being tested? And it's a possibility that you were doing both. How you come out on the other end determines whether you were tempted or tested. Same word. Tempt, test. Test, tempt. But let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured away and enticed by his own desire. So in that first James passage, it talked about being tested. In the second passage, it talked about being tested and tempted. And the word is the same in both. Pirazzo. So the word itself can carry a connotation of testing or tempting. So does God tempt anyone? Clearly no. 
James says that God cannot be tempted with evil and He Himself tempts no one and that we are tempted because of our own desires. So, God wasn't tempting Jesus. He was led out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the question was, could Jesus have been tempted and sinned in this encounter? God was testing Him, which is good, and the devil was tempting Him. Could Jesus have swung the devil's way? God Himself, we saw in James, cannot be tempted with evil. So was Jesus God? Absolutely. Truly God. But was He not truly man as well? Yes, He was. Be careful with the word fully. Fully God and fully man. We say that a lot. Truly is a much better word. We were actually in Orlando when you all sent us to the Ligonier Conference and the panel discussion, R.C. Sproul, Al Mohler, John MacArthur. I don't remember who else was up there. And John MacArthur said he was fully God and fully man. And R.C. said, wait a second. He was truly God and truly man. And John MacArthur said, thank you for reminding me what I believe. Because that's, that's true. He was truly God and he was truly man. So could he have been tempted to sin? No. He could not have. The word here is impeccability. Impeccability. Impeccability means that Jesus was perfect and unable to sin. You say, well, then he wasn't really tempted. He was tested, and the devil tried to tempt him, but he had no sin in himself. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So the devil, when he tempts us, he he appeals to the sin that's in us. That's the part of us that likes this thing. Jesus had none of that in Him. Jesus didn't have any sin in Him. So the temptation of the devil fell on deaf ears or fell on a deaf person because he he couldn't go, oh, you know what, I do want that. Jesus said He only came to do the Father's will. But the question then is, was this really a temptation? Sure it was. It says in the Scripture. He was led out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The devil was tempting him. God was testing him. And he was going to come out on the other side of this test having shown that he was truly God. A.W. Pink points out that Jesus was perfect and unable to sin. And since he was God, he is necessarily then immutable or unchangeable, and He is also omnipotent or all-powerful. So He couldn't change from sinless to sinful, and He was more powerful than the power of sin. It's important to understand. And we're going to tell you why later, why that's important. Yes, He was truly man, but He was perfect man. He was the second Adam. We read the temptation of Adam and Eve this morning. And again, look juxtapose these two situations against each other. Adam and Eve are in a perfect, beautiful garden, hand-tended by God, walking with God in the cool of the day, in an ideal situation. And they were tempted with one tiny little sin, and they fell. And here's the Son of God, who we call the second Adam, and He's out in the wilderness, in the desert. Snakes, scorpions, spiders, all that stuff. He's hungry. He hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. And He doesn't fall. He doesn't sin. Yes, He was truly man, but He was perfect man. 
the second Adam whose perfection overcame and overwhelmed sin. So then, was he truly tempted? Well, yes and yes. Just because you don't sin doesn't mean you aren't tempted, right? Have you ever been tempted and overcame it and didn't sin? Now, do you get on the other side of it and say, well, I wasn't really tempted? No, you say, I was tempted and I didn't sin. So it's possible to be tempted and not sin, which is exactly what happened with Jesus. So Jesus was tempted and did not sin. And also remember the word pirazzo can mean tempt or test. Well, Jesus was being tempted and He was being tested. But not in a negative sense. The devil was tempting Him to try to get Him to sin and God was testing Him to show that He was above sin's power. Which again shows God's power over and in the midst of sin. Jesus, God's will for Jesus to be here the Holy Spirit sent him here for this specific purpose, shows that temptation has to be overcome. And that's good news for us. We'll get to that at the end, by the way. The Holy Spirit of God led the Son of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Which can seem odd, but I think we see a little clearly now as to why. Now, verse 2, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. To which I say, you figure this was my life story, it would say, and after fasting 40 minutes, he was hungry. But it's not. It's not about me. It's about Jesus, and he fasted for 40 days. Now this is reminiscent of Moses. When Moses went up on the mountain, it says he was up there 40 days and 40 nights, and he neither ate food nor drank water. God sustained him while he was up there. And so what's going on in these 40 days for Jesus? I don't know. Bible doesn't say. We don't know what's going on. But I think it's worth noting that this time of preparation and focus in this fasting came directly after his baptism and directly before his direct confrontation with the devil, which tells me there's value in fasting. And I don't know that we exercise that nearly enough. Fasting humbles and prepares us. And listen to me, you can be sure that following any victory or any high spiritual experience, Orlando, I want you to think about this, especially coming out of last week, coming out of something like that, any high time in our life, temptation is close behind. So here, between the high point and this direct confrontation, Jesus shows us a good practice, which is fasting, not eating. And we say, well, I'll fast Starbucks. Really? I'll fast my favorite TV show. No. Don't eat. You say, well, medically I can't do that. Then don't do it. But if you can, fasting is a good, profitable habit. Especially following a spiritual high, especially looking at confrontation that you know that is coming. It humbles us and it prepares us. And after 40 days, in His humanness, He was hungry. And what follows next? And the tempter. Same word, by the way, is pirazzo. Pirazzan is what it actually says. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The tempter came to him. The tempter came to tempt him. And some of you may be familiar with this passage. Some of you may not be. But what we're going to see is the devil present three specific temptations to Jesus. And again, it was John MacArthur that pointed out in, in my studies that Jesus had to have shared this experience with somebody. 
for us to know about it. So Jesus obviously wanted us to know it. Nobody else was there. So since Jesus wanted it known, and He conveyed it to somebody else, we would do well to pay attention to this. We can see how the enemy works, and we can see how to combat him, according to Jesus' example. And we are supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ, so if we're going to fight temptation, let's fight it like Jesus does. Okay. So we see the first temptation. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The devil hits Jesus directly in his human nature. The devil goes straight for the jugular here, which is, in your humanness, you may be prone to sin. In this physical body, which is hungry, I'm going to hit your word, hurts. Hey, you're hungry. You should do something about that. Change these stones to loaves of bread. And sidebar, let me get a little bit silly for just a second. He didn't say pieces of bread, he said loaves of bread. So, if we're going to eat bread, we need to eat a lot of bread. Okay? Anyway, so. You're hungry, you should do something about it. Change these stones to loaves of bread. Now, my first question is, would it be sin to turn stones to bread? I mean, if you could. I can't, you can't. But Jesus could have. And why would that be wrong? And this is pretty important. There was nothing inherently sinful about Jesus working miracles. We'll see Him work miracles all through the Gospel of Matthew. And there's nothing inherently sinful about Jesus working miracles. But here, if He did this miracle, it would be exerting His deity for Himself, for His personal gratification. And it would have been shortcutting the process that God was taking Him through. So it would have been a selfish miracle and it would have short-circuited the process of God. God had him in the wilderness. The Spirit let him out and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And there was a conclusion to that, but it wasn't going to be according to what the flesh of Christ wanted. So that's what would have been sinful about it. Here, if he had done this, it would have been sin because Jesus would have been exerting his deity for his personal gain. And we see in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself of the divine privileges so that he could lay his life down for others. Not so that he could say, hey, look at me, I can make stones bread. And that would have been sin. And Jesus would not sin. He would not shortcut the natural processes here, especially at the behest of Satan. So if Satan comes up and elbows you and says, hey, maybe you should think about doing this... It's usually a good idea to say, no. Just a general principle there. Okay, He hates you. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and when you walk in lockstep with Him, you're sinning. He doesn't want your good. He didn't want Jesus to not be hungry. He wanted Jesus to sin. And note that Satan pointed out that Jesus should do this if you are the Son of God. Now, we just come from the baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. But we are a month and a half later. And it's easy to forget the proclamation of God over our lives. I see it time and time again in my life. I forget who I am. I forget that it was my sin that held Him there. But that He looks and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. I think God's upset with me. I think God's mad at me. And I think I should try to make myself happy if God's not going to be happy. 
If you are the Son of God, and just hisses, doesn't it? If you are the Son of God. And it's an echo of Eden, right? What we read this morning, opening up. Did God really say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased? Did God really say, if you are the Son of God, then prove it? And there's another side here. Jesus didn't have to prove Himself to the devil or anyone else. His foes in the future will say similar things. If you're the Son of God, come off that cross. He saved others, let Him save Himself. And so the devil will consistently try to get Jesus to prove Himself in ways that weren't appointed by God. God's path led to the cross. God's path led to suffering. And the devil says, well, if you're the Son of God, surely God wouldn't want you to suffer. If you're, the, if you're a child of God, surely God wants you to be happy. If you're a child of God, prove it. You do something that shows you're God's Son. This will be Satan's consistent temptation to Jesus, and guess what? It will be Satan's consistent temptation to us too. So how do we respond to it? Verse 4. But he, being Jesus, answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus goes straight to God's Word to remind Himself and His enemy what God did say. He didn't go back to His... Stop. Listen. This is big. He didn't go back to His experience. Well, I, I saw the heavens opened. And I heard the angelic voice, the voice of God saying this. He didn't say, God said this to me. He could have, but He didn't. He didn't go back to His experience. He went back to the Scripture. I am sick to death of people saying, well, I know this is true because this happened to me. We know it's true because God said it. And it's written down in a book that we can point to and say it says it right here. Not God said to me this, but it is written this. That's huge. Huge! Your experiences are not invalid, but they are not inspired. So if you just point back to your experience, you are going to fall. But if you point back to the Word... Jesus answered, it is written. This was the common way to refer to the Scriptures, God's Word. When Jewish folks said it is written, it was in reference to the Scriptures. So what was written? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is from Deuteronomy 8.3, where Moses was relaying how God had provided for His people by giving manna from heaven. Jesus was saying that He would wait for God's provision instead of making his own way. That's a good example, y'all. So the devil comes back this way. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the devil moves from one tactic to another. The outer temptation to the physical man didn't work. The appeal to physical food didn't work. So the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Not sure how that worked. 
Not sure what was going on here. But here stands the devil and the Son of God on the highest point of Herod's temple. And the devil says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. But this is not a suicide attempt because rather Satan is saying, Prove your godness here. And to drive this point home, the devil uses Jesus' tactic against him. He appeals to the Scriptures. See, if you throw yourself off of here, God will act and everybody will see it, for it is written. Same phrase. He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Come on, Jesus. Prove your God's Son by jumping, because God has said, it is written, that He will send angels to keep you from even striking your foot against a stone. Satan is quoting Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, which speaks of God protecting His people. So now think about this. Put yourself in this situation. How audacious is it for the devil to quote God's Word to God's Son? To try to get God's Son to do something that would prove He was God's Son. Come on, do it. You won't get hurt. And, Satan's thinking, and everybody will see this too. And they'll be so impressed. Prove it. Show your sonness. Show your godness. Show it to me. Show it to yourself. Show it to everybody. Because even God said in His Scripture that He'd protect you. So what does Jesus do? It stays on message. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus goes right back to the Scriptures. You hear that? And he quotes them rightly in the context of his temptation. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.16 here to show that testing God is against God's will. For Jesus to jump off the temple to make God rescue him would be against the will of God. Jesus was going to die, but it wasn't going to be jumping off the temple. Jesus would be delivered, but it wouldn't be till after his death. It would be wrong to make God prove that God is God and that Jesus was His Son. So Jesus will not do it. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So you see two back-to-back temptations. The first one is provide for yourself. Jesus says, no, I won't. Here, the devil says, make God provide for you. And Jesus says, no, I will not. We can't do it all ourselves, but we can't make God do it all either. Right? You're hungry. Make some food. No. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Well, then make God do something to show He's God in your life. Nope, I'm not going to do that either. So two down, one to go. Verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. Again, don't know how that happened. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So here, Satan just drops all pretense and all craftiness and just says, worship me. And if Jesus will worship him, the devil will give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And this is what Satan has been after from the beginning. His original fault that got him thrown from heaven was wanting to make himself like the Most High. He wanted to be worshipped. He wanted held in the same regard as God. And so here now, Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world which are held under the sway of the devil in his limited time 
if Jesus would just fall down and worship him. Now again, don't know how this happened. Don't know where this mountain was. Don't know what they saw exactly as they're viewing the kingdoms of the world and their glory. But here they stand and Satan offers them now to Jesus. My question is, were they Satan's to give? And I think in a limited sense they were. Satan is called the prince of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. And the Bible says in 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But we see in Revelation 12, 12, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So I think the devil could have given the kingdoms of the world to Jesus, but only for a limited time, only in the now. Tuck that away, we'll be back to that. So how does Jesus, who will be king over all for all eternity, how does he respond? Verse 10, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan! For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Now Jesus was not about to worship Satan. Wasn't going to happen. He's not interested in His temporary kingdoms, and He says to him, Be gone, Satan. I love that. It's like telling a dog to get. Get! Get, Satan, get! My dad does it really well. I don't Maybe I'm... Get! I feel like I need to run off when he says it. And here Jesus exercises his direct authority over Satan. He says, be gone. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Another quote from Deuteronomy. Anybody ever heard the Rich Mullins song quoting Deuteronomy to the devil? It's pretty good. This is from 613 of Deuteronomy. Get out of here, devil, because God has said that worship is for Him and Him alone. So there will be no worshiping of you on my part. Only God will receive my praise and my service. So how does the devil respond? Tucks his tail between his legs. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So after three failed attempts to drag the Son of God into sin, the devil left him. Glad that's over. Luke adds, though, in his account in Luke 4.13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Real quickly, the next temptation you go through is not going to be the last temptation you go through. Amen. So be careful, Sam. Whoop! Okay! Let he who stands take heed lest he fall. The devil's always looking for an opportune time. So the devil left, but he would be looking for another time to tempt Jesus. Jesus wasn't done being tempted. In his human form, there would be plenty of times to try to push his buttons and pester him. But for now, the devil leaves. And after he leaves, look, behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now what do you figure that means? I think that means that after this physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual struggle, God sends ministering spirits to help and aid his son. And he will do the same for you. Yeah, he might bring you a knock on the door. Somebody sent you a pizza. I don't know. No. No hard proof here, but it would make sense that they strengthened him physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Did they bring him food? Did they bring him manna from heaven? Maybe. Either way, it says that they were ministering to him. It means to serve, to wait upon. Jesus had some heavenly waiters tending to him. 
And I can't imagine what that must have been like. And again, Jesus made sure that we knew about this because He conveyed it to somebody, whether it was Matthew or all of His disciples or whoever, and we see it here. Can you imagine that? Now you talk about a denouement, a conclusion to a story. Jesus is telling a story. He's like, and then I said, be gone. And after He left, angels appeared. And they were just blessing me, encouraging me, strengthening me. They brought me food. I don't know what He said. And everybody's like, whoa. That's a good story. It is a good story. Not just a story. That's a historical account. So what do we do with it? How do we apply it? Three words. We're going to take a little detour to Asian Station today. Just a little stop along the way. This isn't the full Asian Station. We're going to look at imputation, temptation, and gratification. Okay? Imputation, temptation, Gratification. How we apply this. First of all, imputation. Listen to me. We sang, in almost every song we sang this morning, the benefits of Jesus dying in our place. The benefits of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and glorification. It was my sin that held Him there until it was accomplished. That's Jesus' death. But now listen to me. Again, I'm thankful for the ministry of God through R.C. Sproul for pointing this out. We are not only given Jesus' righteous standing now. Okay, We said that He gave us His righteousness. He took our sin and gave us His righteousness. But we're not only given His righteous standing as He stands now. Listen, we are credited with His active obedience. And you're saying, okay, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not with you. Stay with me. Listen, when Jesus was tested by God, tempted by the devil, His obedience and His overcoming that temptation is credited to us. It wasn't just His death that is credited to our accounts. It was His life that was credited to us. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And guess who gets the benefits of that? Me. Us. So not only were we imputed His accomplished righteousness as He sat down at the right hand of God, we are given that too. But listen to me. We are credited with His obedience when He lived His life. Let me ask you a question. Back to temptation. When you're tempted... Do you never sin? Or do you sin sometimes? <laughs> right. You're right. What he said. Ha 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 Sometimes we sin, but listen, in Christ we are credited the obedience of Christ. Not only does He not see any stain on us because He took our sins away, He sees the perfect obedience of Christ in our lives because we are in Christ and we are credited with His obedience. I love the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And I need to love the life of Christ as much as I love those things. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus never sinned. And His perfect obedience is credited to you. His active obedience is credited to you. It's as if we have kept the law perfectly. Because we are in Him and He did it. And in Him, 
We've done it. His experience then is our experience now. You're saying, so that means I'm not ever sinning? No, I'm saying you're sinning and because of Jesus' obedience, His obedience is credited to you as a believer. It's as if we have kept the law perfectly. We are given the surety of the hope of Jesus, complete and perfect obedience. Stop and think about that for a second. Look at this passage, Hebrews 6, 19-20. We've referred to it a lot. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever under the order of Melchizedek. We won't get into the Melchizedek thing this morning. Not that it's not important, it's just not in our context today. But listen to me. Jesus has gone behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies because He accomplished the righteousness of God. And now, look, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. And we enter into the inner place behind the curtain because of His obedience, because of what He has done, because He is our forerunner. And we are imputed the gift of His perfect obedience. So when I look and I see Jesus overcoming Satan, me too! God says... Jason did that because Jesus did that. Why is that important? Because now, since we know that, we can now walk in the power of Jesus to live an obedient life in the present, having been given everything He is and has for us. We live in faith in His ability to obey through us now. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. There's the death. But Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Listen, I now live in the flesh. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who overcame every temptation. It's no longer I who live. But it's He who lives in me and through me in perfect obedience. You say, but I'm not walking in perfect obedience. But you are credited with perfect obedience because of what He's done. There is therefore now no condemnation. Not because you're not sinning. Paul says at the end of Romans 7, I'm doing the very thing I don't want to do. I serve the law of God with my mind, but outside I see a different law. Wretched man that I am, there's therefore now no condemnation because of Jesus' perfect obedience. We need to think about that for a while. That's probably upended me more than anything this week. Jesus overcame temptation and since He did, His obedience, His overcoming is credited to our account. Which leads to point two, temptation. We looked at imputation, now we're looking at temptation which is the theme of the passage. Listen, Scripture is clear. It is inevitable that temptation comes. First side of relief about temptation is this. It is not sin to be tempted. Now it's sin to put yourself in a position where you know you're going to be tempted. Don't do that. But when you are tempted, and this used to just absolutely crucify me, I felt bad because I was tempted. I felt bad because I shouldn't want that. Well, guess what? I do want it. And the fact that I want it doesn't disqualify me from God's blessing. The fact that I want it shows that I'm human and I'm not yet perfect. 
And the fact that I want it doesn't mean that I have to do it. The fact that I want that fruit doesn't mean that I have to partake of it. So temptation is not a sin. What you do with that temptation determines whether you're going to sin or not. So what do we do with sin? What, did, what, what do we do with temptation? What did Jesus do with temptation? Where did He refer to? Three times. He referred to, it is written. First time it is written. Then the, the devil came back, be careful, because he's going to come back and say, yeah, it's written this. You're going, oh, shoot. Sure is, isn't it? And if you don't know what God has said and in what context, you're going to get led astray by Scripture. But we refer back to Scripture, we memorize Scripture, we let it form our thinking, Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What's going to renew your mind? The Word of God. And when the temptation comes, you can say that's not consistent with what God has said. Even if somebody's saying God said it, you can say that's not consistent with what God said. And if you look, temptation's pretty common. And the devil hasn't really changed his tactics because he hadn't had to. 1 John 2, 16-17 For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Look at those three things there. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the pride of life. Same thing we saw in Eden. She saw that the fruit looked good. It was desirable for food. And it was desirable to make one wise. It's the same three things. And if you look at Jesus' temptation, it's the same three things. You want food. Well, that's a desire of the flesh. The desires of the eyes, we want people to look at us and say, whoa. The devil's trying to get Jesus to jump off and have people look at him and go, whoa, that's the Son of God because God saved him. And then he appealed to the pride of his life when he said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world right now if you'll just bow down and worship me. Listen, there is nothing new under the sun. And if you can recognize and classify what's going on, is this a lust of the flesh? Is this a desire of the eyes? Or is this about the pride of life? And then we can refer back to what the Word says about those things, just like Jesus did, just like Adam and Eve should have. We're not going to fall into temptation. We're going to come out of it. It will have been a test and we will shine forth like the righteous people that we are. Walking in the active obedience of the power of Christ in us. And we fight temptation with the Word. There's no other way to do it. You try to rationalize. Well, maybe, possibly, I do kind of deserve this. And you're going to sin, I promise. I promise you. Ain't going to hurt anybody. I'm here by myself. Don't nobody even have to know. Well, you know, I have done it before and I I can't ask for forgiveness because God loves me. You start rationalizing. You start having a conversation with the devil, a conversation with his temptation, you are going to fall. When temptation comes, go back to the Word. Quickly. Directly. Don't reason with it. And try to figure out why it's alright or why it's not alright. Go back to the Word and declare to yourself, to that temptation, thus saith the Lord. Which means you have to have the Word where? Here. Here. All in your life. Psalm 119, 9-11. How can a young man keep his way pure? 
by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Read the word. Memorize the word. Meditate on the word. Quote the word. Use the word to fight temptation. Or you will fall. Jesus used the word. I should use the word. It makes the Bible very important. Know what is written. And when temptation comes, thus it is written, I will worship the Lord my God and Him only. I don't live by bread alone. I will not put the Lord my God to the test. Because He said that. Fight the inevitable temptation in your life with the Word. If you are woefully and adequately inadequately equipped with the Word, find somebody who can speak the Word into your life. Bury your face, your heart, your mind into the Word of God and hide it here in your heart so that you might not sin against God. That's 1 plus 1 equals 2. I don't need to read my Bible today. Be careful. So oftentimes God gives us what we need right when we need it. You read something in the morning and you go out in your face with a temptation. You're like, man, God said this morning this. Don't go 40 days without the Word. You're going to fall. Fight temptation with the Word. So we've seen imputation, we've seen temptation, and we could dwell there a long time, but we don't have a long time. So we finish with gratification. Imputation, temptation, gratification. Listen, this gets back to waiting for God's time and trusting in God's promises. Even when things don't look like the way we think they should look. This gets back to Jesus not taking the quick or immediate route. This centers on the fact that our giving into temptation, please hear me say this, is more often than not rooted in the desire for immediate gratification. I want what I want and I want it now. That's what the culture screams to you. Every day. You deserve it. You want it. You should have it. Now! Don't wait for stuff. Who waits for stuff? Well, this is a microwave society. I can have popcorn in 45 seconds. That's too long. I don't have time to make popcorn. <laughs> We want what feels good right now. We want a quick fix. We want a fleeting pleasure. And the Bible is clear that sin is pleasurable, but only for a season. Jesus could have made those loaves of bread and eaten and sat down and said, Oh man, I feel better. And the devil would have laughed all the way back to hell. And Jesus would have went, Oh, of course that didn't happen. But how many times has that happened to you? I know I shouldn't, but man, I really want to. Listen, don't go that route. I know I shouldn't because the Word says this. And my wanting it just shows that there is sin living in my mortal body and I'm supposed to crucify that. The Word has said, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. No! Because 
because this is only going to be pleasurable for a season, then I'm going to be convicted. Then I'm going to be sorry. If you are between the ages of 3 and 18, look at me. Learn this phrase. What I want later is better than what I want right now. I'm going to say it again. What I want later is better than what I want right now. Because I'm telling you, especially you young folks, it, it applies to everybody, but especially you young folks, there is coming a time, if it has not already come, when you are going to want something you know you should not want. And I promise you, what you want later is better than what you want right now. It's called delayed gratification. Not immediate gratification. Something knocks on the door of your heart. Maybe it's something you know you shouldn't take and you take it. Maybe it's something somebody offers you that you know you shouldn't have and you take it. Maybe it's somebody's very soul and they offer it to you and you take it. It's not worth it. Immediate gratification is not worth it. There's something better waiting up the road for you. And God teaches us to live on the premise of delayed gratification. Yes, I have all the promises, all the blessings of God right now, but I'm telling you, C.S. Lewis said, for the Christian, the best is always up ahead. And if I forfeit something that could be up there because I take something now instead of waiting for something better later, I have forfeited God's best for me even now. What I want later is better than what I want right now. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Sin promises you pleasure. And that's not the lie. The lie is not that it isn't pleasurable, it's that it leads to everlasting pleasure. It does not. The fleeting pleasure of sin is but for a season, and it always brings consequences. God in His grace can bless us in spite of that, but the consequences are going to come. You don't steal stuff because you're going to get in trouble. You don't take what belongs to other people because you're going to get in trouble. Yeah, you'll have it, and then it's going to be gone, and you're going to be in trouble. You don't give yourself to someone else because it feels good in the moment. You are going to regret it later. I can tell you from personal experience, you're going to regret it later. What I want later is better than what I want right now because right now it seems right to me, but the end of it is death. That's what sin does. Look at the ultimate end of the thing. Is it for me now or is it for the glory of God later? And I promise you, I promise you, thus saith the Lord, the glory of God later is better than the fleeting pleasure of sin now. Jesus knew that. And He looked the devil in the eye and He said, Be gone, Satan, because it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God in Him 
only. Don't worship yourself. Don't worship that significant other. Don't worship that thing. Don't worship that food. Don't worship those things that cry out for your attention and your affection right now. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and say, I want your glory later. And I can see your glory barely now. And that's better than this thing that's calling out to me. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Reaping later is better than partaking of now. Don't give up. 40 days, 40 nights, no food. Don't give up and just make a loaf of bread out of a rock. Immediate gratification in the moment that you're going to regret later. Don't do it. Know that God has infused you by imputing to you the righteousness of Jesus, the active obedience and righteousness of Jesus. So when temptation comes, I don't give in to immediate gratification, but I wait for that fruit that's coming up the road from me overcoming this so that I can glorify God more properly, more rightly, more completely up there. It's exactly what Jesus tells us to do. It's exactly how He shows us to handle it through our passage today. Let's pray. God, you have not left us defenseless. Yes, we dwell in human flesh that is corrupted by sin, but you have infused us with your Holy Spirit. You have given us your word. You have given us your people so that we can stare directly into the face of temptation, overcome it, and come out as having being tested with steadfastness being produced to your glory and for our good. May we be a people who look at the devil in the eye and say, it is written. It is written. It is written. And may we be a people who prefer the delayed gratification. May we be a people who know that what we want later is better than what we want right now. And may we be a people consumed with a passion for your glory in eternity and in the present day. Thank you for your Spirit who empowered Jesus. Thank you for your Spirit who now empowers us. May we not just say no to temptation. May we say it is written. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? And we will be... uh, I'll give you the benediction. Don't leave. Orlando is going to come and sign his covenant. Um, I almost forgot that. So, I'll pronounce the benediction. You all can have a seat. And then we'll come forward and do that. And then we'll go eat. So, now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.